0: Whispers in the Trees is a dark podcast currently focusing on the Great White North, surrounding all of our grisly truths from the kindest place on Earth to the head-scratching unknowns hidden beneath our snow. My name is Mads, and join me today on a deep dive into the world of Piggy Palace. Before we begin, today's case will involve torture, murder, child abuse, animal abuse, and sexual assault. Viewer discretion is strongly advised. If you want to help me continue my passion in bringing these dark secrets to light, consider supporting me at buymeacoffee.com forward slash whispers podcast. Now join me around my campfire. These are my whispers in the trees. woman's body beaten beyond recognition. You sip your coffee, taking a drag of your smoke, turning the page, taking a bite of your toast. Just another day, just another death, just one more thing for you to forget. You and your soft, sheltered life just go on and on, for nobody special from your world is gone. Just another hasting street whore sentenced to death. No judge, no jury, no trial, no mercy the judge's gavel already fallen sentence already passed poem by sarah devries robert picton was born in port coquitlam british columbia on october 26 1949 he had a brother and a sister and a dysfunctional pair of parents there really isn't a lot known about his early life but from what i can gather it wasn't the greatest according to people that knew the family robert's father wasn't really involved in his kids lives and his mom was a workaholic who focused on running the family pig farm she would have her kids work long days on that very farm skipping school to make time for this robert would later recall how when he wanted to get away from people he would go into the slaughterhouse find a hollowed out pig carcass to climb inside and hide this is the life that he was growing up in there's not a lot known But these are the tales we hear former classmates would recall how young robert was known to be slow in school coming in stinking of body odor and manure something i would imagine was from working on the farm constantly and from allegedly climbing into pig carcasses i can't imagine you would smell very good after that robert would also recall how his father had given him a calf to raise as a child he loved this little calf and he raised it Allegedly, he bottle-fed it and raised it from very young, but as a punishment, while Robert was at school, his father butchered and slaughtered it, and when Robert came home, he was called into the barn to see what his father had done. Robert never had a girlfriend, and his hygiene was again stuff of poco legend, causing kids to call him names like Piggy. So far, not a great upbringing. When his friends later in life would ask him to shower because he had become unbearable to be around, he would often explain that his mother would force him to only bathe, and it caused a deep-rooted fear of showers, so he would have to use the tub. He was a tall man, he was like six feet tall, so it was hard for him to find a tub that fit him. I also think, as strange as it sounds, the smells were a comforting thing for him. This was a kid raised in pig slaughter and hard work. He knew blood, sweat, and tears growing up. This was a kid who hid in pig carcasses to hide, and that was his comfort place. I'm sure his BO and own stink probably just smelled like home and comfort. Not what we would understand, but I'm sure it was what he understood something that really tells what kind of environment these kids were raised in would be the tale of when robert's older brother turned 16. the boy was driving his car with his brand new license and he hit a kid that he didn't see he raced home to his mom it's unclear if he hopped in his car and drove home or if he ran home but either way he went home came back with his mom and his mom looked at the the kid who was still breathing and helped Robert's brother chuck him in a ditch. So Robert's mother sent Robert's brother Dave to a family friend who was a mechanic to deal with the damages done to the car, get them repaired, and police would later find this little boy who was 13 that drowned in a ditch because of a missing persons report that his family obviously filed autopsy performed would show that while he had suffered severe injuries by the hit and run his skull and pelvis being fractured while his brain bleeding due to the skull fracture even though he suffered this he was not dead until he fucking drowned he was 13 Fortunately, an investigation was put underway despite the coroner ruling it a drowning with vehicular injuries Causing accidental death Strange decision in my mind, but I'm not a coroner, I'm just a voice on the internet Dave did end up going to juvenile court, but the details are locked and sealed due to it being a juvenile case As for Robert's mom? Nothing actually happened to her Dave stayed silent about her involvement until after her death in the 70s. When his parents passed away, they passed the farm on to the kids, who eventually sold most of it to urban developers. Robert kept some livestock farm to himself, while also helping Dave with a salvage company that he had started, as well as receiving a share of the real estate proceeds. The Picton kids were turned into millionaires basically overnight. Despite his riches, Robert still lived in a trailer home on his property. Whatever makes him happy, I guess. We are not here to judge. In 1996, the brothers decided to start the Piggy's Palace Good Time Society. They registered it as a charity that was supposed to raise money for various organizations through dances and shows. These were supposed to be donated to, quote, service organizations, sports organizations, and other worthy groups. Neighbors would complain of rowdiness, drug use, drunkenness, and noise. Not a great start. Bikers and sex trade workers from Vancouver's downtown East Side were in frequent attendance, and the parties were usually 1,700 people strong. They were just drug and sex parties, really, and Robert would roast up a pig from his farm to serve, guests later recounting how they would back away slowly as he tore the pigs apart with his bare hands. Delicious. These parties were often held in a converted slaughterhouse on the property. So basically, these guys were holding raves and orgies under the guise of charity work. Awesome whatever floats your boat until you get to this point so these parties were often filled with people from vancouver's downtown east side this is an area known for its open drug use prostitution poverty and in turn homelessness in the 90s 80 percent of the girls and women in the sex trade came from just outside vancouver and they would kind of huddle in this area. Acts against these women were violent, including kidnapping, forced confinement, beatings, and robberies that would just go unreported because these girls and women didn't trust the police for reasons we're going to discuss in this podcast. This was an ideal hunting ground for Robert. There was a 10-block stretch that he would cruise down called the Low Track, offering his victims drugs and money in exchange for sex. If you guys also heard my podcast on the Highway of Tears, it's also thought that he was linked to this as well. When he had a victim secured, the two would return to the farm for his horrors to begin. A friend and roommate of his, Glenn Bellwood, would testify in court against Robert. According to him, he would bring the victim to his bedroom handcuff the girl to the bed on her stomach and have sex with her. I would rather say that he pretty much raped her, even though this was a sex worker. This is rape. This is forcible, confined sex, where the girl could not have said no. This is rape. When he was done, he would soothe the girl, petting her hair, telling her it would be okay. He was done with her. While Robert had been telling this to Glen, he had acted it out. After he had soothed his victim to his liking, he would reach under his bed for a belt or piano wire and strangle the victim to death. When the victim was dead, he would carry the body outside of the trailer to the barn where he would string it up, gut, and bleed them like he would a pig for slaughter. Apparently, Robert had made a special comment about how much a person bleeds, how he could not believe how much blood comes out of a person when he was done with the slaughter and butcher of the women he would feed them to his pigs and what the pigs didn't eat he would jar up and take to the Vancouver rendering plant the rendering plant would take this raw material mixed with the pork material from the farm and make bone meal fat meal tallow and grease that would later be turned into lipstick base soap paint perfume and base for animal feeds Because that doesn't make your skin crawl to think about. Scott Chubb, former friend of Robert's, also testified against him in court. He said that Robert had told him that the best way to kill a heroin addict was by, quote, injecting them with washer fluid. So he would feed the women to pigs and then feed the pigs to people? Does this count as a weird secondhand cannibalism? It's also alleged he would grind up some of the pork and human meat from his victims together to sell to the public. This was never proven, so it's only alleged. Alleged. And while it still may be just an unproven story, I'm sure many people in the Lower Mainland were throwing up their dinners that day. Lynn Ellingson was a woman who was dependent on Robert for a place to stay and for a cocaine supply in 1999. She worked on the farm in return for these things. She went into the barn to do some of the coke that he had given her and accidentally caught him doing these things to a victim she couldn't identify. The woman had been hanging by chains from the rafters and on a table beside her was blood and black hair. Lynn tried to only stare at her feet, later recalling that the woman had been wearing red toenail polish. When Robert caught her outside the door of the slaughterhouse, he grabbed her, pulling her inside and made her look at what he had done, telling her if she said anything, he would end her life and she would end up the same way. He then sent her in a taxi to go get drugs, and she never returned to the farm police informant would tell her story to the authorities after she told him, but she would take her statement back out of fear. She would later become a witness at Roberts' trial in 2007, eight years after the event. So the Vancouver Police Department had a Missing Women Task Force, originally started in 1978. They did not join up with the RCMP until 2001, To begin compiling a list of missing women for this particular case the earliest known victim not including the victims robert confessed to that were unable to actually be connected was diana melnick last seen december 22nd 1995 but in truth and honesty it would be years before he would be caught and robert would not even be convicted of diana's murder there was only enough for a charge that would be dropped The reason it took so long is likely due to who Robert was targeting. Again, he was attacking sex workers in a place famous for open drug use and crime. This is a very transient community. People came and went with the business. They would go to different people and places, leaving without a word or trace. They have few connections because it's a dangerous, isolated lifestyle, usually only relying on other people in the streets with you for protection these women that were being targeted were women that already didn't trust authorities. The police have historically not believed people addicted to drugs because their minds are, yes, warped by the substances they ingest. This is an unfortunate problem and while I understand the reasoning behind the logic, there really are unfortunate circumstances that I'm just gonna bluntly say it. The cops are lazy, corrupt, careless, and neglectful. Things should still be investigated, no matter who is coming forward with the story. Even if it turns out it's a drug-addled person who saw something in their room because they were on a bad trip, it should still be looked at because it could be something in that room with that person alone. I understand that some people say this is a waste of time and resources, but to be completely honest, Negligence gets people hurt and fucking killed. This is just one unfortunate example of this. If it was a woman in the suburbs, forget race or age. Just think, a woman in the suburbs who is drinking and heard a noise in her yard. The cops will go and investigate. It turns out to be a stray dog. What's the difference? What is the difference between someone being drunk and someone being high and hearing a stray animal or something different? or even just a twig against their house that freaks them out, and the cops have to go and investigate. There actually was a Vancouver police task force designed to specifically look into missing sex workers, but this only lasted from 1987 until 1989 because it was apparently going nowhere. Because the women of the downtown east side didn't have trust in the police, they began to try and protect themselves, They would form groups, do headcounts of their individual groups, and they would write down the license plates of the cars that the women got into. They tried to keep each other safe in a community that they were never safe in to begin with. They continued to disappear, and this distrust would just begin to be put to the wayside. In 1991, the women started the annual Valentine's Day Remembrance Walk to memorialize and bring attention to the missing and murdered girls. They were demanding investigation now that they themselves knew there was a serial killer on the loose. They were met with disbelief from the authorities. The Vancouver Sun got involved, which is a a newspaper in Vancouver, in reporting how sluggish the police investigation was. Reporting how authorities had explained to families and friends of missing women that the missing couldn't be dead because there were no bodies found. They must have moved, and if they were in fact dead, it had to have been from drug overdoses. They were already doing drugs to begin with. This is a dangerous pastime, don't you know? The police were refusing to believe that there was a serial killer on the loose, as Robert got to run loose and kill as he pleased. They even denied that there was a serial killer on the loose on March 22nd, 1997, when a young woman flew into Royal Columbian Hospital in New Westminster. It's a pretty big hospital in the Lower Mainland. She had a set of handcuffs on one wrist, holding her guts inside her stomach. Robert had brought the young woman home and attempted his usual routine of cuffing her down, and she put up a, a fight. She grabbed a kitchen knife and both her and Robert both got seriously stabbed in the fight that ensued. She slashed his throat and he stabbed her in the gut multiple times. She managed to run away and flag down a car and the driver then called an ambulance that brought her to the hospital. While she was undergoing surgery, dying and being revived on the table twice, Robert showed up at the same hospital for treatment for his wounds. When the victim was questioned, she saw Robert and told the police that he had been the man to do this to her. Despite the orderlies finding the key to her handcuffs, still in his pocket, there was disbelief. He was initially arrested, but in the end, the police did not believe her. She was a drug addict. How could she possibly give reliable testimony? Robert said she was a hitchhiker who attacked him first. His word against hers, he was supposedly this charitable man who was giving all this money to charities in the community and helping the community, and was this well-known butcher. She was a drug addict. Who are they going to believe? The charges were dropped. To top it all off, a friend of Robert's had seen what she believed were the belongings of missing women on the property. Things like shoes, purses, handbags, and clothing were used as examples when she went to Bill Hiscox, a worker on Robert's farm, about it. She was going to protect her friend, be it out of a need for what he could give her or out of friendship, I don't know, but the information didn't sit right with Bill. He went to the RCMP two separate times with this, but they couldn't do anything. It was hearsay evidence, by word of mouth and not actually witnessed by Bill himself. Therefore, it was unreliable evidence, and when they tried to corroborate with the woman who went to Bill, she wouldn't cooperate. She was going to protect Robert for whatever reason she had, so they could not do anything. So even when they chose to have faith, they would be helped. The women had little help and little anything, They were failed in ways i can't even begin to comprehend i have to say i kind of get why the women on the street had such little faith in the authorities while it is believed that robert was hunting for victims far earlier than the timeline the authorities were able to piece together they were not able to connect him to the other murders he was connected to the following 26 women diana melnick went missing december 22nd 1995 Kara Louise Ellis, also known on the streets as Nikki Trimble, was 25 when she was last seen in 1996. She was reported missing in October of 2002. Tanya Hollick was 23 when last seen in October 1996. Andrea Faye Borhaven was 27 when she was last seen in March 1997. Helen May Hallmark, last seen August, 1997. Marnie Lee Frey was an outgoing, compassionate woman who loved animals and a loving mother. A carefree girl who loved the simple things in life, her father remarked that he would never know what she would be wearing when she got home from school. She would give people who needed them the clothes off of her back. She was last seen also in August of 1997. Sherry Irving was 24 when she was last seen in 1997. She is quoted by an old high school friend as a good person, very generous and fun, who unfortunately found the wrong path. Cynthia Felix, last seen in December, 1997. Cindy's stepmother says that she was a high-spirited little girl who was no trouble at all until she was 16 and decided to meet her biological father. See, her mother and her father had given her up when she was very young, and that's why she had a stepmother. She just had a stepmother and a stepfather. That's what they were calling themselves. So at 16, Cynthia decided to go meet her biological father. She found him in a trailer park, and he would tell her... The only way he would get to know her is by having sex with her. This turned her down a very hard path of drugs, starting with beer, turning to marijuana, turning to other hard drugs found on the streets. Carrie koski was between 38 and 39 when she was last seen in January of 1998. She was a mother and had a bad string of relationships. One who would physically abuse her, one who would then commit suicide, and one who would end up giving her her heroin to cope with her pain. Her sister described her as a kind and generous woman, always willing to help people. She would give you the shirt off of her back if you needed it. She didn't have a mean bone in her body. She had promised her sister she would come clean of all of her drug habits, Jane Doe's charges would be lifted as Robert refused to enter a plea and there were already so many other charges they believed that there was no point in tacking on one more. Inga Monique Hall was 46 when last seen in February 1998. She was born in Germany and had two daughters and two grandchildren. Sarah DeVries last seen April 1998. If her name sounds familiar suddenly, she wrote the poem I read at the beginning of the podcast. It was taken from her journal during investigations. She had a beautiful mind amidst her own chaos. Her sister Maggie wrote a book about Sarah called Missing Sarah, painting her as a bright, funny, charismatic, and sensitive woman trapped in this downward spiral of her own self-loathing, prostitution, drugs, and violence. It's an award-winning novel if you wanna go check it out. Angela Rebecca Jardine, was last seen November 20th, 1998. She was a young woman who was intellectually disabled, said to only have the intellect of an 11-year-old. I can only imagine how she was feeling these atrocities. Uh, I would imagine it was on a level that the other victims did not feel. Oh, I can only imagine. Jennifer Lynn Firminger, last seen in 1999. She is described as a beloved friend and someone who had a loving home. She was adopted into a non-native home as a toddler and as the only native person in the home, she struggled with her self-identity. She was an artist and because of her own inner turmoil, she had a cocaine habit that would lead to prostitution. Georgina Faith Pepin was last seen in 1999. She's remembered as a caring mother, friend and sister an artist and writer georgina was the mother of seven children she is described as a warm and funny woman who could talk to anyone the sort of person who made friends wherever she went she embraced her aboriginal identity often wearing traditional cree outfits and using traditional cree songs and dances using them in her art and day-to-day life tiffany drew was last seen in december 1999 She was described as being saucy and sweet, beautiful, and someone who would take care of herself. She had a lot of attitude and she was a creature of habit. She was dearly loved by those around her. Wendy Crawford was last seen in 1999. Also a mother, she went missing and is missed by her family. Jacqueline Michelle McDonald was 23 and a mother when she was last seen in January of 1999. Deborah Lynn Jones was 43 when she was last seen in December of 2000. Brenda Ann Wolfe was 32 when she was last seen in February 1999, reported missing in April of 2000. She liked country music and she liked to dance. She was known to be kind and tough, doing whatever she had to do to support her two daughters. Patricia Rose Johnson, last seen in March 2001, Her parents desperately tried to bring in photos and other things to help with her missing persons file, but the authorities kept brushing them off, telling them that Patricia was just out partying and she would turn up at some point. It took time before the file would even be opened up and her family had little hope that it would work out at this point. Patricia is said to have been a really good mother who loved to write poems. She was exciting, outgoing, and she loved life. She was always there for her kids but she had a drug addiction the last two years of her life heather chinock was 30 when she was last seen in april 2001 she was a mother of two heather kathleen bottomley was 24 when she was last seen on april 17th 2001 she was also a mother of two serena abbotsway was born august 20th 1971 she had fetal alcohol syndrome and she was thrown into a foster family who helped care for her due to the fact that she suffered from this disability she was said to be a bubbly little girl who loved to sing out of tune in church as a child an attitude that she carried with her into adulthood she just had problems with acting out in school which caused her to be homeschooled she gained some independence later on but she fell into a drug and prostitution world because of a boyfriend that she met later on she was 29 when she disappeared in august 2001. mona lee wilson was reported missing november 30th 2001 after going missing last seen kind of deal november 23rd of the same year she was a mother of one she was sexually and physically abused by her own family before being removed and placed into foster care when she was four years old this would be when she would become happier she hated wearing dresses and putting ribbons in her hair when she was a kid and she preferred to work on the family farm with the animals than to be at church her family told a story of how once she stole chicks from the coop and brought them to her bed to play and care for them just wanting to sleep and cuddle with them simply because She loved them so much. She was a real tomboy and loved to be in the mud, said her foster brother, but she had some outbursts and issues in school and outside the home. Despite this problem, the government decided to yank her out of the foster home that she was doing well in at 14 and place her into independent living at 16. Mona would fall further down a rabbit hole of drugs and prostitution that she would hide from her foster family, the old one that she still was in contact with and because she hid it, they couldn't help her. Diane Rosemary Rock, last seen on October 19th, 2001, reported missing December 13th of the same year. She was a mother of five. And finally, but not least, Andrea Josbury was 23 when she was last seen in June 2001. She had recently called her grandfather and told him that she had been working in a rehab program to kick her meth habit she had fallen into during her seven years on the streets. She'd run away at 16 trying to get out of her rough upbringing, and since getting into this program, she was said to be getting happier. Sherry was said to be doing better, and her life was just beginning when it was ripped from her. Robert was not seriously investigated or connected to these cases until a former employee of Robert's went to the RCMP and filed a tip of illegal guns being on the property in 2002. Because he personally had seen these guns, the police were able to get a search warrant for the farm and the police were not ready for what they found. With all of this leading up to the raid, especially with Bill Hiscox, the guy who came to them before with the hearsay evidence, They really should have been prepared. They should have... mm, I have so many things that I would love to say. But we won't, to continue on with the story. Robert was arrested and then released on bail, but was not allowed anywhere near the farm while authorities investigated. This investigation would take two years to conclude and over 70 million dollars. And that is dollars in Canadian. There was 11 acres of land, as well as piles of dirt alleged to be an acre in and of themselves. That's a lot of dirt. Inside of Robert's trailer, the one he called home, the police found a scattered mess. On top of the illegal firearms they found, there were other objects, ranging from the slightly suspicious to the stomach-dropping, oh shit, Inside of Robert's headboard, there was women's jewelry, two pairs of leopard print fake fur handcuffs, items with different women's names on them, and various sex toys. There's a reason I'm bringing these up. In the kitchen was a twenty-two revolver. Over the barrel was a spiky black dildo sleeve, to put it bluntly, and one round was fired. Because that's not concerning at all. This sleeve had DNA belonging to Missing Woman, Mona Wilson. They also found night vision goggles with the gun dildo contraption. Never thought I was going to be saying that sentence today. Bone fragments were found in the soil, particularly a jaw fragment connecting to Marnie Frey. Blood evidence connected to Mona Wilson was all over his trailer home. An asthma inhaler prescribed to Serena Abbott's way as well as various other inhalers prescribed to different women. There were syringes filled with blue liquid that had blood evidence in them. Remember how Robert would talk about injecting women with washer fluid? They found buckets filled with fluid that held the halved heads and body parts of victims. They also found victims severed heads in the freezer. Robert would remove the head and cut them in half with a reciprocating saw before putting them into the buckets that he would label clout. Many of these buckets had just turned into a nasty soup by the time investigators found them and it destroyed a lot of evidence that would have led to identification. From what they could see, and I'm going to say this is pretty nasty, um, the way they found these heads were he would cut them in half, and then he would take everything out, and then he would put them in together, like stack them like bowls, and then he would put the hands and feet in that, and then he would put it in the bucket so it all fit. At the trial, the reason that I'm going to go into graphic detail in this case is because This case was mishandled, even in the courtroom. The victim's families were made to sit through the evidence being put forward, everything being put forward, and they had no warning of what what they were about to listen to and see. So I can't even imagine what they were going through when they were forced to witness this because they were just trying to see justice being served to people that they loved? The girls and women that they loved? As they faced down the man that did this to them, they were forced to look at photographs and forced to look at things and listen to the coroners and pathologists and expert witnesses explain what had happened. Many walked out, but... Cynthia, Felix's stepmother, forced herself to stare at Robert Pickton in the face as she listened to what he did to her daughter. And we'll get into what happened to Cynthia later on. She was not one of the ones included in the bucket, but we'll get into that. I feel it was necessary to mention that now before we get into that part of the case. This left a lot of the family bitter and I cannot even begin to wrap my mind around why they thought this was a good idea to do this to the victims' families. I want to apologize to them and I wasn't even involved. I'm just a podcaster on the internet. I'm just someone who likes true crime as a fascinating hobby to keep my brain going. This hurts my soul that they had to go through this. So now, this is how they found Serena Abbotsway's head, hands, and feet in the freezer that police originally thought was operating until it began to smell. This happened two days into investigation. Mona Wilson's was found in a garbage bag in the slaughterhouse. Cynthia Felix's meat... I hate to use that term, but that's what it was. Her flesh was ground into basically hamburger meat. And six packages of this was found in the same freezer that they found Serena Abbott's way in. They had to carve a puck, like a little chunk, out of the center of the meat. I hate using that word for this, out of the flesh and send it to DNA testing, which is how they managed to corroborate it as Cynthia. So that's what her stepmother forced herself to listen to and look at as she stared at Robert Picton in the face. I'd feel some intense <laughs> hatred in my soul if it was my loved one I was listening to about. Georgina Pappin's hand bones were found also in the slaughterhouse. So there were similarities found between a skull that was found in Mission and the skulls found on the farm. It was damaged and there was no mandible located. The vertebrae were still attached. It was believed to have been bisected the exact same way as the ones on the farm with a reciprocating saw. This skull was found just off of Highway 7 in a swamp, which is why I said earlier There is evidence pointing towards the possibility that he could have been involved in the Highway of Tears murders. This is only possibility and allegation never been proven. This skull belonged to Jane Doe In the old pig pen on the property. They found Brenda Wolf's jaw and five of her teeth. They ended up finding the remains or DNA of 33 women on the farm, only being able to connect it to 26 names before the trial. But while awaiting trial, Robert was put in a cell with an undercover agent. Robert claimed that he had been getting quote-unquote sloppy at the end, and that was why he had gotten caught. He had really wanted to do one more killing in particular because then he would have hit the quote-unquote big 5 50. He alleges there were 49 women that he killed. Despite facing that this was not a fellow inmate but an undercover officer, he still pled not guilty to his crimes. In December of 2007, he was finally convicted of only six counts of second-degree murder. He was convicted for the murders of Georgina Pappen, Brenda Wolf, Serena Abbotsway, Mona Williams, Marnie Frey, and Andrea Josbury. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 25 years. Since then, he has written a book, Cue My Eye roll. That was smuggled out of prison and published as well as someone coming forward claiming to have received letters from Robert. These letters were never verified to be real and this man claims he never kept the original copies so I think it's safe to say he did this for attention. The 26 women I named are the ones that were able to be identified and connected. Since then there has also been evidence connecting him to Mary Ann Clark aka Nancy Greek. Who disappeared in August 1991 from downtown Victoria. Yvonne Marie Bowen, sometimes using the last name England when last seen on March 16th, 2001. She was reported missing on March 21st, 2001. Dawn Teresa Cray reported missing in December 2000 and possibly up to 20 more unidentified women. The Vancouver Police Department issued an apology to the friends, families, and victims affected by Robert. They said that they wished that they had caught him quicker and they wished that they had done more. There was public outcry for inquiry into the department. This inquiry would happen in 2010, and it would lead to a list of failures being released to the public called Forsaken in 2012. There were allegations stating that the police department didn't take their time with this case seriously. Some officers possibly watching pornography, sexually harassing other officers, and quote-unquote using the terms hooker and whores for the victims of this case. These are only allegations. Again, they have not been proven. But I think it's safe to say that with the way this has been treated, I wouldn't be surprised with these officers in specific. In Forsaken, they made 63 recommendations to improve. These recommendations were things like starting the Greater Vancouver Police Force so that communication and cooperation between authorities would flow easier, more funding for emergency shelters for women in the sex trade, and more help for children of these women they did not create another regional police force, but they did make a missing persons task force a permanent part of the department. Now investigations are required to begin without delay and case files are kept open until the person is found. Robert won't be eligible for parole until 2032, but even then I can almost guarantee it won't be happening He claims he has been bullied in prison despite spending his time in the Lower Mainland Penitentiary in solitary. Because of this, he was moved to a Quebec prison in 2018. Since then, I haven't been able to dig anything up on him. If anyone out there possibly knows anything about the unidentified cases or the missing women that I possibly named in this case that were not actually charged of Picton, if you know anything about the cases, please visit bccrimestoppers.com or call 1-800-222-8477. You can leave an anonymous tip at either of these at 24-7, 365 a year. Let's work together to help these victims and their families. Even though it's believed that they were connected to Picton and it's really, really thought and they have strong evidence, you never know. Again, it's bccrimestoppers.com or call 1-800-222-8477. If you or anyone else are suffering from violence, please reach out for help at your local helplines. You can find your province-specific ones at www.dawncanada.net forward slash issues forward slash crisis dash hotlines forward slash. This is a really great directory that's listed by province. It's got all of the abuse helplines that you could possibly need. You just got to scroll through, find your province, find the abuse helpline you need in that province and it's it'll send you right there. Again, www.dawncanada.net forward slash issues forward slash crisis dash hotlines forward slash. You deserve all of the help that you could possibly get even the help that you don't think you deserve. If you or someone you know is suffering from a mental health crisis or need someone to talk to about anything mental health related, you can dial 833-456-4566 for the Canadian Suicide Prevention Hotline. They are open 24-7, 365 a year, and they're available in English and French. Again, this is 833-456-4566. For my American listeners, your helpline is 1-800-273-8255. They're also open 24-7, 365 a year. Can't say for sure that they're available in French, but they are available in English, and they will talk to you about anything mental health related. But if you feel it is more severe, please dial 911 or visit your local emergency room because, again, you deserve all of the help you can possibly get. You are worthy of everything that you feel you aren't. You guys can also find me wherever you find your podcasts, as well as on YouTube at Whispers in the Trees. Thank you so much for your continued support. You guys are amazing, and thank you for listening. Stay safe out there.